Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 152, and we're going to dig into a story that is not often told, the Amatola Sand Raiders of the Jochensburg. They emerged by the end of the third decade of the 19th century as a result of a mishmash of forces at play on the felt. And what a remarkable story this is, so hold on to your horses, literally, as you're going to hear. What has been rediscovered recently is the identification of a plethora of mounted frontier raiding groups and how these had impacted the interior of southern Africa, in particular the mountains northeast of the Cape Colony. Certain frontier raiding groups, often referred to simply as Bushmen, were really comprised of members from many formerly distinct ethnicities and included the progeny from subsequent intermarriage. Cultural and ethnic mixing, the advent of the horse, the increased access to guns and ammunition, and the need for identity to adapt to these changes resulted in a volatile mix indeed. These were freed slaves, Khoisan, San, as well as English soldiers who had gone AWOL, and descendants of former VOC soldiers who were Swedish, German, Swiss and Dutch. There's a correlation here with the American frontier experience where men and sometimes women armed with muskets and bows and spears wearing feathered headgear or wide-brimmed trek-boer hats in South Africa, riding horses, they raided their neighbors for cattle and horses or exchanged these valuable resources for corn and tobacco, dogs, alcohol, much like other 19th century frontiers. In America, the roaming bandits were the Germanos, the Lakota, the Metis, all became seminal in the B-grade Western movies of the 1950s. Because horses were only introduced to the Drakensberg in the 1830s and production of hunter-gatherer rock art in that region had almost entirely ceased by the 1880s, horse paintings are comparatively tightly pinpointed in time, unlike virtually all other categories of these images in southern African rock art. Sand paintings of this time reveal quite an astonishing fact these people had a mixed material culture. The paintings of these San and others who were not San appear to be working together, carrying firearms, riding horses with their dogs running alongside, carrying bows and spears, and importantly, dancing their trance dances. The area I'm addressing lies between the Imzimvubu River and the Tina River, across the central Drakensberg, in other words, across both sides of the escarpment, stretching from Giant's Castle, in modern-day KwaZulu-Natal, to Mount Fletcher in the Eastern Cape, and Matsali inside Lesotho. Glancing at the Google Maps and tracing the folks living in this area in 1840, you'll find the Fortrekkers arraigned inland from Port Natal around Peter Maritzburg and up to the headwaters of the Mgeni, the Moy River, and Bushman's River, just below Giant's Castle. From here, the Sand Raiders controlled the landscape, along the ridges of the Drakensberg southwesterly to Mount Fletcher, in the slopes above the St. Clou River and the headwaters of the Orange River, if you prefer. This overlooked where the Batra lived in the south and southeast of them, and then the Amampondo, further south, and then Ampondomise, then the Amantembu, and to the east and south the Amatkosa, and to their south the English settlers in Albany. I hope you can feel the proximity of these Amatola raiders, because everyone in these areas were somewhat fearful of the gangs of men on horses. So the raiders were based in the mountain redoubt between Giant's Castle and Mount Fletcher, and they were surrounded by enemies, but also prospective allies. This mountain redoubt was getting a bad name, and soon would be identified on maps from the 1840s onwards as No Man's Land. 
Furthermore, the frontier raiding groups emanating from here were all identified as Bushmen when they were more a conglomeration of various types of people. The poor trekkers who'd begun farming on the slopes below Giant's Castle were raided by these sand horsemen by 1840 and fought back. Often the commanders would target the Batka people, who were the closest group to the trekkers on the southern side of the Drakensberg. The Batka weren't entirely innocent. They knowingly traded in stolen Boer goods, so the food trekkers regarded them as accessories to plunder. The Amatola raiding parties were diverse, to put it mildly, not only racially, but also how they structured their joint assaults. Sometimes they would join up with the Batka, other times with the Amamtembu or the Mpondomise. Any tracking would invariably lead the Boers south into Amatola land, and any people living alongside the trail would find their livestock seized by the trekkers. As researcher William Chalice has pointed out in his Journal of African History article called A Case Study of the Amatola Bushmen in the Maloti Drakensberg, the settlers throughout these regions were well aware of the fact that these raiders collaborated with other groups. The spoils of raiding would be traded through an intricate network. What we also need to understand is that the term Bushman used in the 19th century became a byword for an economy and a way of life, not a race. These Amatola Bushmen, for example, would form up with their allies and raid far into Natal, hitting Moy River, Escort, and even Pietermaritzburg. What has been misunderstood for some time is that these raiders were not San or Khoikhoi or Bastard or Korana or Griqua or Bantu speaking. They were all of these at once. Most were progeny of miscegenation. They developed their own mixed language and raiding culture. Once they'd mixed, they were identified thus, calling themselves Bushmen when they weren't fully San, if you know what I mean. Living high on the hills meant living alongside some pretty scary animals, like leopards, and anyone who has met them, baboons too, are particularly fearsome. So the Amatola paintings, the San rock art of this time, feature baboons as a powerful and binding symbol. Baboons eat quite a range of plants, and the sand believed the manifestation of these animals' intelligence and physical power derived from medicinal plants. The symbolism of this creature was utterly unique. It popped up on these paintings at precisely the point that the sand raiders, or the Amatola bushmen, as they were known, became a feature of these mountains. Unfortunately, there's not an awful lot known about exactly which plants these were. Zoologists have noted that the baboon is in some ways like the horse. Their running gaits are comparable to the canter and gallop of a horse, hind legs and forelegs moving in pairs, and juvenile baboons between six weeks to a year old are often carried in the jockey position on the mama baboon's back. The sand over thousands of years ate virtually every wild animal in the book, except baboons and hyenas, because baboons were regarded as a spiritual animal and hyenas are inedible. Imagine the period, the 1840s, a time of myth, emerging of cultures, multi-ethnic groups were thrown together and sought out protection together, and they sought independence. The organized states around them, the British Empire, the Amatkoza, the Fuertrika state in Natal, the Amampondo, the Batra, Moshweshwe's Basutu, the Griqua, all had some form of structured existence. These sand raiders thirsted for freedom, harking back to their ancestors who roamed as Khoikhoi, Khoisan, and San. Joining them were men who sought adventure, if you like, who were also chafing under the yoke of developing life. The escaped slaves, the white soldiers, who were whipped almost to death in a macabre form of medieval discipline. These same raiders might have been on the fringe, 
but they were extremely well armed. They lived at the intersection of their own ancestral narrative, their stories of freedom, and would migrate as individuals across the country to work for a period on someone's farm in the Cape. Then they would buy a horse and a gun, and then return to their distant mountain retreat. What they were doing was amalgamating their pre-colonial culture with the latest technology. These were the tools of the conquering West, the horse and the gun, but anyone can learn how to ride and shoot. The Metis and Lakota of North America, the Karana, the Griqua, and the Amatola of Southern Africa, all are examples of these new raiding groups, a horde, a posse. It's important to see what was going on, not to be misguided about this. It's not a simple dichotomy between those doing the colonizing and those being colonized. What you could call multi-ethnic entanglements had festooned the felt, where colonizer could mean people of different skin colors and distinct backgrounds and cultures, while the colonized were multi-layered groups of people, often in conflict themselves. It's what anthropologists call an ethnogenesis, assimilation through various means, you could say. Take a look at the North American frontier. It's similar, with the establishment of European colonies causing a ripple effect way beyond their immediate borders, where those on the periphery sought refuge in inaccessible places. These renegade communities were a safe haven for runaway slaves and people escaping religious persecution, outlaw European soldiers who deserted, and the generally disenfranchised. In America and in South Africa, these enclaves were often involved in raiding colonial settlements and were ethnically diverse. That was their strength. They formed an ethnogenesis where intermarriage rearranged their previous separate cultural identities. These people, these San and Bantu speakers, San and Khoikhoi pastoralists, Bantu speakers and pastoralists, the escaped slaves from India, West Africa, Madagascar, and the white deserters were thrown together. So what united them? I'll get back to that in a minute. Near the Amatola brigands lived the Batra, who had originally hailed from the Natal Midlands, but fled from Shaka in the early 1820s to the edge of this no-man's land on the hills above the Amampondo, while the Amamfengu were a conglomeration of different people who ended up fleeing into the Eastern Cape for protection from military leaders like Mzilikatsi. The destabilized state of the region beckoned like a beacon to men who were willing to live fast and die young. The sand raiders were equal opportunity brigands. They stole from both the white and black farmers. They traded in ivory and skins, and these bands caused an increase in tension between the settlers and the Amakosa, and the Fuertrekkers and the Amampondo, and even the Amazulu to the north. Some of the Amamfengu were fed up with the little patches of land and poor treatment in the Eastern Cape, and began to join the raiders as well. One group of mixed bandits were based quite far south, they weren't strictly the Amatolas. They hid close to the headwaters of the Matrazana River, north of Fort Beaufort, armed with muskets, riding horses. They'd been impossible to capture. Many despondent members of the Cut River settlement reportedly joined this band, but their time was numbered. The British governor was under pressure by the English settlers to seize all the land here and fully annex this part of the colony. That would finally take place in 1847. The Khoi and Karana spoke a patois that would become Afrikaans, a creolized language, a heady mix of Dutch, sautéed with seafarer variants of Malay, Portuguese, Indonesian, and the indigenous Khoi Khoi and San languages, plus French and German. This language origin itself is steeped in ethnogenesis, and from this melting pot a new form of art emerged, which only lasted 40 years. 
giving expression to this horde. The Sand Raiders painted rock art which no longer was characterized by the fine lines, the exquisite detail, the shading, the animation, the complex scenes, fantastical monsters, and the sheer variety of the sand over millennia. These new paintings were more clumsy and often featured horses along with human figures. Earlier rock art was imbued with color, trance buck flying through the air, thin red lines, rays of light, the illant, great use of black, yellow ochre and bright vermilion or orange. The newer paintings were monochrome or bichrome, but almost never polychrome. There was something else that bound these raiders to themselves, secure their ancient ways on the felt and in the mountains. Their belief system was rooted, if you excuse the pun, in medicinal plants. The concept of magic and flora is part of indigenous belief, and the Tlamsan believed that baboons used root plants in particular to sense approaching danger. They took note of the root plants chewed by the Chakma baboons and dug them up for use themselves. The category of this plant was referred to as Toa by the San, a dangerous plant, one that incapacitated a person and caused the enemy to be confounded. The sand raiders believed that the baboons sensed approaching danger because they chewed these root medicines. The sand didn't swallow these plants, they would be chewed and spat out in the direction of the enemy. The same roots would be rubbed into wounds. The Karana, for example, believed in their power and wore the plants and amulets around their necks. They called it their war magic. The Kamsan people and the Amakosa also utilized an array of plants in a similar fashion. The Amakosa war doctors used their Mabope, the thing that binds medicine, also slung around the necks of warriors. The root would be chewed and spat out at crucial moments in battle. Bullets would then supposedly turn to water. Spears would be deflected. The enemy would not see you, or they'd be transfixed, and perhaps they'd also be confused. What tied these disparate people together, therefore, was the belief in the cognate power of certain plants. These sand raiders, the Amatola, would have donned their medicinal plants of choice, which served as a reinforcing mechanism for the entire group. A shared belief system is what ties us together culturally. One of these plants we do know about is the buffon bulb, which the sand believed transported the souls of the dead through the doorway of the spirit to life hereafter. This plant is known as the Bushman poison bulb. The buffon plant is a bulb that is harvested for use in rituals. A quick health and safety warning here. There's a fine line between a trance dose of the buffon and death. Its Latin name is buffon distica, and it stands out on the scrubland, resembling a traditional headdress or even peacock feathers with its unique fan-like leaf structure sticking out from the bulb, about a foot off the ground. During July to October, it also produces a bright red to yellow flower in a ball-like structure that is pollinated by bees and other insects. The sand used the poison extracted from the bulb to kill large animals with their tiny arrows, and every year in South Africa to this day, around 30 people die from eating this bulb. The sand, the koi, and the amakosa, and others across the southern African landscape consumed various plants on a day-to-day -day basis to treat headaches, stomach pains, and other maladies. The plants were apparently imbued with supernatural qualities, and many were specifically used for defense and the protection of the self or the group. In the world of the Tlamsan, the animal associated with these powers was also the baboon. Researchers over many years have interviewed San who explained in great detail how a baboon would keep a wad of a certain root plant in their mouths, or a stick of sotwa, and would not swallow. This stick would then tell the baboon about matters it does not know, 
It would reveal hidden things to the animal, including potential enemies. It would be protected from death, or perhaps even cheat death, as well as cheat its enemies, and danger in general, by imbuing this animal with a healthy dose of fear. This sounds contradictory, but being aware of danger or fearful of danger is a precursor to fight or flight instincts. The logic here is that if you're too stupid to be afraid of danger, then you're going to die sooner rather than later. Because the baboon was so highly aware of danger, the sand went to great lengths to secure baboon hair to use as a special magic to avoid being caught off guard. Considering that there were raiding Trekpurs, Amazulu, Amampondo, English farmers, and pretty much any village on the neighboring African felt, it's important that they used every magic trick at their disposal, isn't it? There's an important correlation with Nguni belief systems, which also values the baboon as a magical creature. There are two types of baboon, by the way. Think of this as good cop and bad cop. The bad cop is the witch's familiar, who is up to no good, a mischief maker who lurks about at night, while the other is the wild natural animal associated with bush and mountains, a kind of noble savage creature, and one that conjoins with the ancestors. The Mpondomisa and other Amatosa speakers who lived alongside the sand raiders regarded the natural baboon as a spirit guide, a personal isilu. It was the war doctors and diviners who were most closely associated with this animal because diviners can do both harm and good, of course. They are ambiguous and therefore feared. So to the baboon. One minute, it's the creature of spirit and depth. The next, it plunders your cornfields and kills your livestock at night. If you've listened to the series from the start, you'll remember that the sand were co-opted by early Amakosa and Nguni groups in general for their perceived power in rainmaking. The sand were also feared, not fully integrated in these societies, useful but never achieving royal status or even becoming fully-fledged members of the Imiz. They lived as useful slaves within the Amatosa system. So the Amatola raiders were a hodgepodge or conglomeration of cultures and people. But woven through their consciousness was the concept of being sand and deploying powerful sand medicines and rituals. These men rode horses with saddles like the Boers in the English. They wore wide-brimmed hats like the Boers with feathers in their headbands. They wore trousers or traditional leather skirts, often appearing shirtless, but with powder horns and belts and muskets slung across their backs, sporting large knives and other weapons like axes and spears and knobkitties. They wound bands of doctored skins and meds around their upper arms and elbows. In the cold, they drew skin capes around their bodies. Think of them, in a way, as pirates of the felt, with their own internalized honor code. Can you imagine coming across these men in 1840? It must have been quite a sight, something like a Mad Max movie, if you excuse my anachronism. The very ancient, the people related to the original people of planet Earth, now riding the latest mobile device called a horse, armed with muskets, speaking this new language called Afrikaans, protected by their ancestral belief in plant-based magic. Running alongside them were packs of hunting dogs, bred specifically to trot for hours in the blazing sun, looking like a cross between a whippet and a Labrador, smaller in size, a medium-sized hound that could sprint like a cheetah. As mentioned in a very early episode, while studying history at Rose University in the mid-80s, I signed on for a vac job to dig through a sand site near Craddock called Waterfall with someone called Dr. Simon Hall, eminent Cape archaeologist. For weeks, we unearthed layer upon layer from a fireplace at the back of a cave, then sifted the soil in the ashes. 
The dig turned out to be more than 2,000 years old, and on the wall of the cave behind us were dozens of the most incredible sand paintings. Dr. Hall traced these as we dug, and pointed out that the later period of paintings were characterized by thicker paint, less delicate, more brash, clumsy. These were the more modern sand in the 19th century. Some of these paintings had been sloshed over the more delicate and much more ancient paintings beneath, in a kind of cultural tsunami, changing the storyline, if you like. That's quite a symbolic act, because raiders like the Amatola were continuing a cultural practice dating back thousands of years, but updating the pictures to feature animals not normally associated with the sand. The paintings now showed the sand wearing big hats, riding horses, carrying firearms, their dogs trotting ahead, driving packs of animals before them, and sometimes they featured huge baboons running alongside. Naturally, the first archaeologists and historians thought these figures on the horses had to be Europeans. That was a forgivable mistake, but goes to show you how preconceptions really stunt our intellect. The cave art also depicted trance dancing that included horses. Sometimes these figurines were painted with baboon heads and tails. This was because the raiders who drew these images were now using sand practices to cohese their culture, so to speak. They had co-opted the baboon's magic as they had co-opted the white man's magic, the horse and the gun. Because the sand rituals featured dancing as a way to mediate with the spirit world, these dances with horses and baboons can be found sprinkled across the caves in only certain parts of southern Africa. One of the most famous sites is at a tributary of the Senkho, or the Orange River, in Lesotho, opposite the sources of the Imzumvubu. Large baboons are painted here, along with sand figures chants dancing with horses. These horse dances with oversized baboon paintings are only found in the stretch from Giant's Castle to south of Mount Fletcher, overlapping the zone of our Amatola sand raiders. They shared a common skill, the use of horses and guns, and yet revered the symbol of an animal that, as we all know, raids places with impunity called the baboon. Many recent examples abound of these grumpy creatures who pitch up unannounced at outdoor events and cause chaos, ransacking Christmas parties, upending rubbish bins, opening car doors to get at the edibles within. Because the Bushman or sand spiritual cosmos is expressed through their art, it has bent and reshaped itself just as they were forced to bend and reshape themselves in the colonial period. The sand art morphed in the period after 1840 until 1880 in a particular part of southern Africa or of the Jorkensburg from John's Castle south to Mount Fletcher district in the Eastern Cape, most of the back range of the Maloti Mountains that connect westward in this region, the Lesotho stretches of the St. or Orange River and the St. Clonyani River. In this region only, the number of horses which feature in sand paintings numbers over 500, by far the most painted animal after the Irland, which appears in thousands of paintings. Fortunately for us, this was painstakingly recorded by Patricia Vinicom, who spent her entire life identifying and copying sand rock paintings in the valleys and foothills of the Drakensberg. It is mainly her work that has transformed the study of rock art into science, and she was also active in preserving Aboriginal rock art in Australia. Born in Mount Curry in East Griqualand province in 1932, Vinicom began to copy sand paintings at the age of 13. She studied at Wits with Raymond Dart and Philip Tobias, and then began to focus on sand art in the Drakensberg in 1958. In 1967, she published some 8,468 images she'd recorded. Then in 1978, she emigrated to Western Australia, and there continued to work in the field of Aboriginal studies. Eventually, she passed away in 2003.
another great scientific South African who has kind of flown under the radar somewhat. I hope this little excursion into the world of the Amatola Raiders has been interesting. Next, we'll swing back into political matters with the Furtrickers now ensconced in the Republic Natalia, their port of Natal secured, or not, as you're going to hear. Because Governor Sir George Napier had been alarmed by reports that the Furtrickers had raided the Batra, close to where the Amamponda lived. Adding to the general din of chaos, Amatosa succession stresses had been building up. Hintz's son, 26-year-old Sarhili, was struggling to impose himself and had announced he was going to return to what he called the land on the west bank of the Kai River. But the Amatembu people, led by the aggressive chief Mterara, had moved in there already after the Sixth Frontier War, and they refused to give ground to the new chief of the Traleka. Sarhili had also tried to impose himself on the Basutu, but was repulsed by Moshweshwe, and had suffered further setbacks against Faku of the Amampondu, who now formed an alliance with the Batra. These two also had an agreement with Mpondomisa chief Mieki. So after a year of raids and skirmishes, the Kaleka line of the Amatosa had been forced to retreat to the coastal regions, utterly defeated. In the eyes of the British authority, the entire northeastern boundary of their colony was unstable, and British Governor Napier thought they had to do something about it, which was going to lead to the first real battle between the Furtrekkers and the British at Port Natal. This clash has been almost forgotten, but believe me, it's worth revisiting, as you're going to hear more about that next episode. If you could rate the podcast on iTunes or any other of your favorite platforms, that helps elevate the visibility, and you can head off to desmondlatham.blog, I'm going to upload an update about this episode. Until next, bye, which is goodbye in Koise. Tutsis.